we've been going through a series called Minor Prophets, Major Wisdom. And uh, in case you don't know, there are 12 minor prophets, and this is the seventh in that, so we're officially on the downhill side. I get to be the one that turns the corner on that and, and uh, chipping away at number seven here uh, today. So uh, to, to set the stage for that, to help you get the context for what we're going to talk about this morning, um, I want to ask if you have ever considered uh, how much Jesus focused on hell in his teaching. Jesus, you know, we often think of Jesus as, uh, you know, gentle, loving, merciful, meek and mild, and, you know, maybe cuddly and comforting, and, you know, like, some people might think of, like, buddy Jesus or whatever, but, um, and, and that's true, Jesus is those things, but he's also, um, well, he is the God of the universe, and in addition to those things, God is, is holy and just and will deal with sin. And so when we think of Jesus, we need to remember that it is because of his goodness that he is wrathful towards sin. And that might be a different perspective than what you have about him. So I want to give you just uh, three or four little snippets of some pictures, not pictures, some passages from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So you don't have to flip through your Bible if you, if you don't want to you know, try to race to keep up. I've got them on the screen here for you. We're going to look first at Matthew 10, 28. And if you want to turn to it and read it from your Bible in your hand, that's great because reading the Bible is good. Okay, uh, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus is referring to, to God, to himself, when he says that. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell. He's like, yeah, fear God. Okay. Uh, next one, Matthew thirteen forty through 42. One of the parables that Jesus told about the kingdom of God. Uh, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And just an aside, I've always wondered, what is is the whole gnashing of teeth? You know, it's a pretty vivid description there. I heard one person describe it as someone who is just like gritting their teeth in anger, like, you ever get so angry that you just like that and and so this person was saying that perhaps this means these are the people that have been um, against God and refusing his grace in their life and so in in eternity in hell they get what they've wanted you know they, they they continue gritting their teeth against God for all of eternity and receiving the wrath of that yikes that's a heavy way to start a message out, isn't it? Okay, moving on. Um, <laughs> Matthew 13, uh, verse uh, 47 through 50. Again, this is another kingdom parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Uh, when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good fish into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be in the end of the age the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, last one, Matthew 25, uh, verses 40 and 46. 
Um, Jesus, again, this is the parable of, you know, uh, you did this in my name, you did that in my name. Uh, And then it gets to the end of there, and he says, uh, then he will say to those on his left, uh, depart from me, you cursed. Uh, Some versions read, uh, you workers of iniquity. Uh, Into the eternal uh, fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we could take a whole lot more time talking about uh, hell and the, the teachings of Jesus on that subject. But, but we're going to look at the, the concept of hell from a different perspective today. And, and I want, I want to kind of just give you my thesis statement here. Uh, and that would be that uh, um, we're going to see that the existence of hell is a comforting reality. Now, I don't know if that seems counterintuitive to you, but hopefully by the end of the message it won't. Um, to see this, we need to look uh, at the issue of hell through the prism of God's character and our lives, and then how we should respond. And so if we do that, if we look at um, the reality of hell uh, through God's character in our lives, and then how we should respond, I hope that by the end of this, we will see that hell can be a comforting reality. So when I think of God's character, I think of, uh, oftentimes I think of the Westminster Catechism, and specifically the answer to the fourth question in the Westminster Catechism. Now, um, I don't know if you know what a catechism is, but it's something that they've used for centuries, millennia, in Christian churches to help, uh, especially the young people, uh, memorize kind of like the foundational core truths of doctrine and theology. It's a basic series of questions and answers, and you know, the answer to the question leads to the next question, which leads to the next question. Because little kids always say, well, how come? Well, why? Well, why? So, so the catechism kind of just daisy chains a bunch of Q&A for the little kids to memorize. So back in the 1600s, uh, some people got together to develop a catechism for that purpose. And also it was maybe the side benefit of uniting some uh, political and spiritual factions that really weren't seeing eye to eye. And they came up with the Westminster Catechism. So I'm going to give you just the first four questions and answers from that. Okay, first question, and you might know this one. You might even not know you know it, but when I ask it or answer it, you might be like, oh yeah, that rings a bell. Okay, question number one, what is the chief end of man? Has anyone heard that one before? What is the chief end of man? Okay, with Scott streaking his head, yes, that, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, what is the chief end of man? You might recognize the answer. Uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now think about, you know, why am I here? What is my purpose, right? Well, my purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I love, John Piper tweaks that a little bit and says, my purpose is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Because God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. So when I enjoy him forever, then he is glorified in me. So anyway, that's catechism number one. Man's chief end, what is it? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, so then number two builds on that. What rule has God given to direct us about how we could enjoy him forever? In other words, so okay, yeah, glorify God. How do I do that? And the answer to that one Uh, The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the only rule to direct us in how we can glorify him and enjoy him. So the Bible, okay? What's my purpose? Glorify God. How do I know how to do that? The Bible, okay? 
pretty foundational, right? Good Sunday school back in the 1600s. You know, they probably had final graphs for this, you know. <laughs> okay, question number three, well, what do the scriptures teach? Okay, my purpose is to glorify God. I learned how to do that in the Bible. Well, what does the Bible say? Makes sense. Uh, the answer to that one, the scripture teaches that man is to, what man is to believe concerning God and what our duty is required of by him. So the Bible teaches me, you know, what I'm supposed to know about him and what I'm supposed to do in response to that. And that's how I can glorify him, by knowing that from the scriptures. So pretty foundational, you know, got that. So then they get to the fourth question, because if the Bible teaches me what I'm supposed to know about God and how I'm supposed to respond, and that's how I will glorify him and enjoy him, well, who is God? And so as they're working through the, you know, the committee meetings of all these, you know, world-renowned theologians in the 1600s, and they get to question number four, well, who is God? Hmm. I mean, that would be like, like an ant trying to describe the solar system, right? How can we, finite, fallen creatures, define and describe an infinite God that's beyond description? So these theologians are just kind of looking at each other. And, you know, they don't really want to jump into it. They're arguing about it. And the, the notes from this, because they had people taking notes on committees, even in the 1600s, and, and so the notes, you know, you can go back and read them, says that they spent hours and hours deliberating about that. And there's a book that cataloged the history of the development of the Westminster Confession and Catechism. And in this book, there's a story about this question number four. And the story goes that they decided that the youngest among them should be the first one to try to answer that question. Yeah, no pressure, right? You know, it's like all these really old, gray-haired, wise people, and then they, they say, hey, you, kid, who's, who's God? <laughs> and he's like, uh, pass. <laughs> and they said, no, really, we want, you to, we want you to go. So he says, okay, but would you all join with me in prayer first? Good answer, right? <laughs> like, oh, we're going to need some prayer here. So, um, so they join him in prayer, and he prays. And I'm going to read the prayer that he, he, he prayed there. O oh God, you who are spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And then he went on to ask God for help in, in defining him. And someone apparently wrote that down, and they got done, you know, he, he said, amen. And, uh, and so someone said, hey, could you read that back? And he reads it back, and they're all like, okay, is that good? Yep, good, okay, who is God? <laughs> what? Wow, that was amazingly simple. So the answer, who is God, um, Westminster Confession number four, um, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, that's a mouthful. That's a lot of really big words. We could preach a whole sermon series just on that. But I want to focus on two of those, his justice and his goodness. Now, if God is unchangeably infinite in his justice and his goodness, how do you balance those out? His justice requires that he deal with sin. He is holy. He is perfect. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God's justice would say that all of us should spend eternity in hell suffering for the sins that we've committed. Now, is that good? See, when we think of goodness, we think, well, maybe God would just say, oh, you know, you really weren't that bad. 
come on in. You know, oh, well, it's okay. I, I know that, you know, you had a hard life, and so sure, just, you know, I'll just turn a blind eye, and you go ahead and come on into heaven, right? Because we want him to be good, and that's us making God in our image. So some people would say, how, how can God be just and good? And I would say, well, how could he be good if he were not just? Think for a moment about the, the worst thing that someone has ever done to you. Like, get that in your head. What is the worst thing that someone has ever done to you? Now, would you believe, would you worship, would you adore a God who let that person get away with that thing? Would that be fair? So I, I would struggle with really uh, believing that God was good if he let that, that uh, person get away with that thing, right? Now, let's take it from the personal to the more global. Uh, think about um, all of the horrible atrocities committed against people, all the, the sex trafficking that's going on, not only in the world, but even in our little corner of the America here in the Northwest, you know, think of all the, the child abuse. You know, think of all the spousal abuse. Would, would you really say God is good if he, if he turned a blind eye in, in the name of being good and said, oh, sure, that's okay? No. Think of Las Vegas and the horrible evil that happened and how many lives have been ended or dramatically changed because of what one man did. Would God be just if he did not deal with that sin? Would God be good if he didn't deal with that sin? See, I, when I see evil in the world, I'm comforted knowing that there's a hell. But hell is not just a comfort, it's also a warning. Because uh, I've been on the other side of that. I've done wrong to people. I've hurt people in my life with the words that I've spoken or haven't spoken, with the things I've done or haven't done. So um, hell is kind of a double-edged sword there, isn't it? In addition to it being uh, a comfort to me when I suffer wrong, it's also a warning to me when I do wrong. And we're going to see how that applies um, to us this morning when we look at the, the prophet Nahum. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it to the prophet Nahum. Uh, if you don't have one, you can grab one from the, the uh, little pew back there in the pocket, and it's on page 782 in, in those Bibles, just to give you a little heads up. It's important to know, uh, in my opinion, um, that it is because of God's character that hell is a comfort and a warning. So his holiness and justice combined with his compassion and mercy should drive me and each one of us to the cross regularly to find forgiveness and comfort. So that's, that's what we're going to hopefully see as we look at Nahum this morning. Uh, Nahum was a prophet that came about a hundred years after Jonah. Um, Jonah came to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians, 
and proclaimed to them that if they did not repent, God would destroy them. And they repented. They, uh, they had a, a citywide fast. They even had their cattle's fast. Okay, cattle fasted. And, um, and so God relented from the judgment that he was going to bring to Nineveh. Uh, and about 50 years after that, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the Assyrians had grown to be a world power. They had, um, they had taken over all of the known world. They had conquered Egypt uh, they had conquered Israel, and, and they, were, um, they were committing horrible atrocities. You can, uh, if you like to Google things, you could Google something like um, uh, Assyrian um, atrocities, and you would probably come up with a big list of the ways that they dealt with the people they vanquished. Uh, the, the kings were really proud of their, their victories, and so they, would, they had you know, people do on little cuneiform and clay tablets and everything, little depictions and telling the stories of, of like piles of heads, like really high, big piles, and how they would take the kings of the people they conquered and, and stretch them out and skin them alive and hang their skins on the city walls and, um, and so many other things that I'm not going to tell you about because it's just grosser than gross. So um, the Assyrians were really bad people, right? Um, and, and so God, uh, God was going to judge them. And so that, you know, 50 years after Jonah, uh, they, they conquered the northern tribes of Israel and, uh, and all that was left was the southern tribe uh, in, in Judah. And uh, so over 30,000 um, or nearly 30,000 Israelites were carried off into captivity by the Assyrians and those that remained, many of them fled south into Judah. And, um, and God raised up, Nahum, to prophesy against Nineveh and against the Assyrians, but he didn't send him to them. He, as far as I can tell, um, Nahum proclaimed this message of destruction to Israel. So this would have been a comfort to uh, Israel because God was going to punish their oppressors, but it would also be a warning because God punishes evil people. And uh, it's important to know that Nahum doesn't contain any opportunity for the Assyrians to repent. They had that chance, they blew it, and, and judgment is coming. And so just as an aside, and I, I'm preaching this to myself and to anyone else who cares to listen, if I wait until God's judgment to repent, then I've waited too long. Like, so Nahum is saying, okay, time over, you're getting judged. And, and, you know, if, for, for all of those in the world who, who decide they want to, you know, live it up on this earth and, you know, party hard, and then they'll just wait until Jesus comes back, and then they'll repent, it's too late. And that's a severe warning. That's a really big deal, and it's here. So, um, when you think of Nineveh, when you think of the Assyrians, think of, uh, like, Nazi Germany, um, if they would have won World War II and taken over the world and maybe joined forces with ISIS— these are the kind of people that we're dealing with like times a hundred. Like they were really evil people and they did horribly evil things. And it's interesting as Nahum brings this message of their destruction and God's rescue of his people, um, Nahum's name actually means comfort. And so God sent comfort to Israel, literally. Okay, um, it's three chapters long, and we're not going to read all three chapters, but I do want to give you a brief overview of it. So in chapter one, we see God's character, 
And part of his character is that he will destroy the wicked and rescue his people. So I want to be part of his people. I don't want to be part of the wicked. So he will destroy the wicked and he will rescue God's people. It's interesting, in the first nine verses of chapter one, we see every Hebrew word for anger show up in those first nine verses. Like think of all the English words we have, like wrath, upset, angry, you know, um, vengeful, whatever, right? Just all those angry words, all the Hebrew angry words are in these first nine verses. So God is angry. And it's important that we see God has a wrathful response to sin. Uh, Another thing that we see in chapter one is that God is offering hope to his people. So he's going to destroy the wicked and rescue his people. So if you are an Israelite and hearing Nahum, or if you are in Christ and seeing this, then there's great hope. And we'll take a look at that later on. Okay, uh, chapter two, we see the fall of Nineveh. Uh, we see that God describes what he's going to do to them. And it's interesting. He talks a lot about like piling their corpses and piling their heads and stretching them out. And, you know, to them, they might be like, oh, wow, that sounds familiar. That's what we did to all those other guys. So uh, God talks about how he's going to um, judge them, right? Their fall will be inevitable and violent, And uh, like I said earlier, um, once God's judgment comes, it's too late to repent. And, uh, you know, they who live by the sword will die by the sword, right? So he's going to do to them like they've been doing to other people. Okay, in chapter 3, we see the world's joy. They are relieved and rejoicing. And Nahum describes that in chapter 3. We'll take a look at some of the verses there where he he describes how the world is, is rejoicing over the fall of Nineveh. Um, uh, things, statements like "woe to the bloody city," and then uh, and then says the world claps. <laughs> like imagine a, a nation falling and being utterly destroyed, and the rest of the world going, "Yes, it's like that." And then uh, Assyria just would not stop their cruelty, which is why God brings that judgment to them. Okay, uh, so that's a brief overview. Let's take a look at a few of these uh, these verses. Uh, first, we're going to look at chapter 1, uh, verses 2 and 3, and then uh, we'll skip up to verse 6. So, uh, Nahum chapter 1, uh, verse 2. Uh, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. For a hundred years, he let them be this way. He's slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Okay, and then uh, we're going to, you may have noticed that phrase slow to anger. That might sound familiar to you, you know, abounding in compassion and all that. Uh, Moses a man who talked with God face to face like a man talks to a friend. Moses said to God, I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. And God said, well, no, it would kill you because I'm bigger than you and you couldn't handle me. So I'll tell you what I'll do, Moses. I'll put you in this, in this little cleft of a rock and, and I'll cover you and, and then I'll pass by. And after I've passed by, I'll remove my hand and you can see me going off in the distance. Moses is like, I'll take it. 
So we read of that story in Exodus chapter 34, and uh, beginning in verse 6 and 7. And it says, The Lord passed by him and proclaimed. And I love, this is God describing himself to his friend. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the God, uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Very similar to what Nahum said, right? God will not let the guilty go unpunished, but God is slow to anger and abounding in compassion. So Nahum knew God. Nahum knew what God said about himself uh, to Moses. And again, I can take comfort in that. So uh, let's look at that comfort in chapter 1 of Nahum, uh, verses 7 and 8, and then I'll skip right up to verses 12 and 13. God says to his people, uh, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Like we sing, you know, a, a mighty fortress is our God. You know, he is a fortress for those who, who seek refuge in him. Uh, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Uh, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, which is Assyria, uh, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. He's speaking to Israel there. And now I will break his yoke off from you. I will break Assyria's yoke off from you, Israel. And will burst your bonds apart. Okay, two things I see there, just real quick. Uh, number one, uh, the Assyrians were oppressing Israel and God was doing that through the Assyrians. He was using the Assyrian nation to discipline his people. Discipline is a good thing. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God is a good father, and as a good father, he disciplines those whom he loves. So if you feel like you're in the woodshed, then you can take very seriously that idea of, you know, a, a dad might say, this is going to hurt me more than this is going to hurt you, or I'm doing this for your own good. You know, and, and you might have received hurtful, harmful um, evil discipline from a parent who didn't understand how to discipline in a godly way, but just trust me, God's discipline is good. He does it because he wants us to be close to him. He was using the Assyrians to discipline Israel in their disobedience. Another thing I see there is that God is sovereign over all of the earth. He directs the course of mankind. He directs the nations. He's, he's using this nation to do this with these people, and then he uses these people to do this thing. Uh, a quick look at Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So God directs the course of, of nations, and there are many more verses we could look at about that. So what does that tell me? That tells me that I can take comfort uh, when there are things going on in the world around me with nations, you know, like, I don't know, um, Spain or Iran or North Korea. God is not fretting. 
God is in control and he is using these global conflicts to accomplish his purpose. Now, we do need to pray for our leaders and trust in God and that kind of thing, but just to put it in its proper perspective, right? God's been using nations ever since they existed. Okay, Um, chapter two, we're not going to look at chapter two for the sake of time, but uh, just so you know, it's a detailed account of what God's going to do to the Assyrians. He's going to bust them up pretty good. So, all right, moving on to chapter three. (laughs) Chapter three shows us that the world will be relieved in rejoicing. So here we see in chapter three, verse 19, I believe that's the last verse in uh, in the book of Nahum. Uh, He says to to the Assyrians, or of them, uh, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Like, it's gonna be bad for you. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For who upon the earth has not come um, your, for upon whom on the earth has not come your unceasing evil? In other words, everyone in the world has experienced the evil that you've brought to them. And when you get what's coming to you, they're going to stand up and they're going to cheer. Ouch. (laughs) Okay, Um, so... Hell is a comforting idea. There there are five reasons I believe that's true. I want to bust through these pretty quickly for you here. Uh, Reason number one, it tells us that evil will be dealt with. And lest we think this is just an Old Testament concept where, you know, God is, you know, judging people and telling people to kill each other and everything. Um, we see this in the New Testament also. The, the church in Thessalonica was, was being persecuted by people who were trying to put down this new thing called Christianity. And, and, and Paul, the apostle who helped found that church, wrote to them to give them some encouragement in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's take a look at that. He says uh, in verse six, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, uh, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because, of our, because our testimony to you was believed. See, this is Paul writing to a church that's being persecuted, saying, don't worry, they'll get theirs. So should I be like, wow, thank you, Lord, that you're going to destroy my oppressors in hell forever. Amen. That just feels kind of icky, doesn't it? Eh? We'll talk about that. Okay. Uh, Reason number two, that hell is a comforting reality. Um, It warns us to repent and receive God's grace. Now, I I could give you a whole bucket of scriptures that call us to turn from evil and receive forgiveness, but we don't have time for that, so trust me, they're in there. And um, if if you are someone who's ever done anything wrong, then you should go to the cross and receive that forgiveness because you don't want to be on the other receiving end of that. Okay, number three, it enables us to let go of hatred. 
Remember I asked you to think of that, that most horrible thing that was ever done to you? I would wager a guess that some of you, when I said that, felt angst in your heart towards that person. You know, I, I was uh, sexually abused when I was younger. And for a long time, I had a whole lot of hatred. I would, I would fantasize about seeing that guy so I could punch him in the face and tell him how he ruined my life. I was so angry. But knowing that God is just and merciful enables me to let go of that. Because I know that, that uh, whether at the cross or in eternity, what Terry did to me will be dealt with. And God is just. And I don't have to worry about that. God tells us this in Romans twelve nineteen through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. If he is thirsty, then give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, that hatred that I had in my heart towards Terry, was, it was consuming me, and it was chaining me to that tragic event in my life, and I was captive to it. But when I was able to let go of that and, and actually say, God, would you break through this man's heart and bring him to his knees before you so that he can receive forgiveness for what he's done to me and other people? I, I was not overcome by evil anymore, but God was able to work his good through me um, and, and bring healing to my heart and, and who knows what else. So knowing that no one will get away with anything, that it will either be dealt with on the cross or in eternity, allows me to let go of that hatred. Okay, um, number four. Hell means that God loves us infinitely. Again, kind of counterintuitive, right? How could hell be evidence of God's love? Well, the punishment that he brings against sin is the punishment that he poured out on Christ so that we can stand before him free of the sin and the guilt that we have. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses, at least in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Um, (laughs) It it says, uh, um, uh, He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. See, God is just because sin was punished. How could a just God let someone get away with it? That sin is not gotten away with. When Jesus received the punishment for my sin on the cross, my sin was punished. And it wasn't just God like checking a box and saying, okay, yep, good, Jesus died. Now we can all be happy and everything. It was God pouring out the wrath that I deserve for all eternity onto Jesus who had become that sin, making him deserving of that wrath. It was dealt with. So that that when I stand before God, that wrath bucket that he has for me It's empty. Wow. I don't deserve that. That's his love, that that he would send his son to receive that punishment that I deserve. 
That's God's love infinitely demonstrated for each one of us. And so when I see hell, I'm reminded of what extents Jesus went to to redeem me because he loves me so much. And it's not just he has to love me because he made me and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, he's crazy about me. He's crazy about you. He digs you. Like, like in, if he had a desk, there would be a picture of you on it and the angels would come in to turn in some paperwork or whatever and they'd be like, oh, hey, who's that? Oh, dude, that's Troy. Let me tell you about Troy. Dude, he's so awesome. And he would, God loves us that way. That's, he sent Jesus to redeem us because of that love. Number five, uh, the existence of hell should move us into effective service. And here I want to um, just, you know, Jesus told everyone uh, to, to go uh, and proclaim that there is forgiveness in Christ and to challenge people to, uh, to turn from their sin. Second uh, Peter 3, 7 through 9 Peter says, By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So he's speaking to the church, to the people who are in Christ. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some would count slowness, but he is patient towards you, Philadelphia Bible Church, not wishing that any out there would perish, but that all would reach repentance. Why hasn't God destroyed this sin-infested ball of matter he's waiting he's he's waiting so that we have time to go tell those people that there is a way to escape that punishment in hell that's what he's left us here to do that's the mission we have and the the reality of hell should compel us towards that okay so five reasons Some of those might stick out to you more than others, and that's great. Just consider five questions, and whichever one means the most to you, then go for it. Do you need to trust that God is good in his justice and mercy? Is that a reality that you need to to grab onto? Number two, do you need to repent from evil and choose to accept the gift of mercy, knowing that he's already punished everything that you've ever done so that you could be with him? Do you need to turn from sin and embrace Christ? And that, that's a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing thing. You know, When I was 13 years old, I received Christ. I, I was born into the kingdom. Every sin I've ever committed will be forgiven, and I'm so thankful for that. But I need to daily, moment by moment, be renewed in that forgiveness. Okay, Uh, number three, uh, do you need to trust him to deal justly with the people that have hurt you? Whether at the cross or in eternity, he'll deal with it. Do you need to trust him in that? Just let go of it and let him take care of it. Number four, do you need to embrace the reality of God's infinite love for you? 
that he adores you. And number five, you need to take advantage of the multitude of moments that he's given you to proclaim this good news to the world that you live in because they need to hear it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am um, I'm humbled and I marvel at uh, your goodness towards each one of us that, uh, that you balance so beautifully, so perfectly the character traits of, of justness and mercy. Thank you for the reality of that in my own life. And God, I pray that you would speak that into our lives in whatever way uh, we need to sense it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.